are listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Digital Noise. I am joined here by John Golson. How are you, sir? I'm great. <laughs> I'm great. Great. He's got a great cat on, great. cat next to him, purring like crazy. What could go wrong with life? And we are, of course, to talk about all the Blu-rays and DVD home releases uh, with our regular rotating cast show. First off, let me just say thanks once again to Oscar Blues Brewing. Uh, there are four brew pub locations, two in Colorado, one in North Carolina, and one in Austin, conveniently located like less than a mile from my house. So that's nice. Uh, but yeah, they supply one of us.net with, uh, well, alcohol, quite frankly, to give to our, our faithful podcasters when they come over. Because you know what? There's no surer way to get people to go, yes, I'll come to your house and do a podcast than to ply them with alcohol. You just give me water. <laughs> I said you can have beer. <laughs> um, the, they were the first craft brewery, of course, put beer in the can. Y'all have heard me say this already at this point, but it's true and worth noting. They were the first people to do that with their Dale's Pay Oil, but they have a lot of really great flavors. If you do get a chance to go to the brewery and do yourself a favor and do that, if you happen to live near one, check out my favorite, if it's still there, the seasonal uh, Fugly, which is um, their fruit IPA. Quite good. Mixing with two uh, Asian fruits, like odd Asian fruits, like the ugly fruit, and I think the kuzu fruit was the other mm. one. It's really tasty. Also, of course, thanks to our subscribers. You guys are the only reason the show can keep going on, or anything on the site can keep going on. Without you, there is no one of us.net. And we continue to have more new and cool things coming because of the fact that you let us do that, and we're deeply grateful. But with all that being said, let's get into the actual reviews. And if you're on the actual website, you'll see there's images of all the movies that we're talking about with time codes and when we talk about them. If you want to buy that movie, please click on those images and buy them from that buy link site because we get a nice little kickback to the site. So that's useful. Uh, in fact, you can start from you could go, I need a new washing machine. But I'll start from one of uh, Digital Noises links <laughs> and we get a kickback on the washing machine. That's always funny when you... Because when you are when you do offer like an affiliate thing like that, and you look and see what the purchases are, sometimes they're things that you didn't even yeah yeah you may be you may have had the home release releases open and discover that oh someone bought like one time somebody bought uh, and I, I didn't link it out this is when I was doing gutters and panels like my comic site mm-hmm. uh, it was like some comic trade paperback and somebody bought a PlayStation Four yeah and and you get a yeah. nice little kickback yeah. yeah there was one guy who bought a refrigerator. Nice. Our lengths, yeah. And that was nice. Yeah. <laughs> we got and, a nice and it, it's like if that. you're spending the money anyways, it, it's nice to help the things you enjoy. Well, our first thing we're going to talk about is a, a Chilean drama uh, that was the winner uh, for Best Foreign Language Film at the 90th Academy Awards this, this year. Uh, a Fantastic Woman. And uh, I I really was sad I missed the original press screening for this one. It was one of those. It was just up against something else I couldn't see because I'd heard nothing but good stuff about this. And now having seen it on Blu-ray, I can say this was indeed an interesting little film. It was really good. I didn't know about it until Oscar night. Um, I, it was not on my radar really at all. Uh, and I liked it. I think there's – I think I probably – and prejudice, uh, not against trans women. <laughs> oh, God. I, I probably, like, oh, God, here we <laughs> no, go. No, no. Also, I, Star Wars, Kelly Marie Tran is I, bullshit. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, pre- I'm probably a little prejudiced when it comes to um, the Academy Awards and the foreign category. My assumption is always going to be that it's pretentious. Mm. And this movie completely lacks pretense. Like, it is... Uh, it's very, very oddly relatable for a situation in which none of us sitting in this room have ever found ourselves in. No. But I think the feeling of being an outsider when you haven't done anything wrong is something that anybody can relate to. And the story follows Daniel Ve- Daniela Vega as Marina Vidal, who is indeed a real-life trans uh, gender woman, and who was, interestingly, originally just brought in as a script consultant, and the director was so taken with her, uh, he was like, you know, have you 
would you consider playing the lead in this film? Which is kind of cool, I think. But um, she, when we first meet her, she's dating, uh, she has, has, she's a lounge singer and she's dating a much older man, Orlando, uh, who they seem to be having a, a solid relationship. But that night he wakes up in a daze, something's wrong. Uh, she gets him to the hospital and finds out that he has died of natural causes. Um, of course, immediately, because of the nature of we, the world we live in, she, uh, Chile, which is not especially if you believe what this, what I, which I have no reason not to from what this movie says, it's not very advanced in their thoughts about, um, uh, you know, anything other than uh, cis uh, gendered people. Uh, right off the bat, the police are questioning her. I mean, the guy died of a brain aneurysm. What do you want? Yeah. You know, his whole family turns against her and she, all she wants is to be there at his funeral. And they're like trying to say, no, we absolutely don't want you there. And it's kind of like the voyage of Marina as she's sort of going through some degree of self-discovery and some degree of just like, what's okay. My cat is having a a brain aneurysm. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) Um, There's a, um, the movie's really smart about the way it conveys information. mm -hmm. And one of the things that I liked about it was that he was not, the family assumes that she's his secret shame, right? That she's his, his, uh, like fetishized side piece. But one of the things that the movie does early on is he has tickets for them to go travel. They're going to go vacation. They're going to spend some serious time off together around some different places. And so that's the kind of like smart filmmaking where it's like it, that, that lets you know that he was completely 100% comfortable accepting Marina on her own terms as a woman was completely at ease with having her out in public. Like, for instance, we see them at the Chinese restaurant, and he brings the people over to sing happy birthday. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot in it that was very, you know, the old maxim about movies, show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. This movie did a great job of the show, don't tell. Character motivations and the way that they perceived certain situations was done through their actions, not through their words. And I, I appreciate movies that do that. It's such a small thing, but it's like movies in general, you know, should be smarter um, and and trust the audience a little bit. And I like the level of trust that this movie gave me as an intelligent viewer to go, all right, if you're smart, then you know the fact that he was going to take her on vacation means she was not a closet fetish side piece. And as a guy who was just watching Pacific Rim 2 when you came over, I hear what you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) And movies do need to be smarter and trust their audience. Pacific Rim is no fantastic (laughs) one. I am saying that. That is true. I mean, I don't think any movie would be hurt by the presence of giant kaiju or like like automated like huge skyscrapers. Yeah, yeah, if this has kaiju in it, then suddenly it's a Nacho Vigalondo movie. That's maybe his next Next film, you know, um, <laughs> a fantastic woman too. Yeah. Uprising, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, but I really, really like this. I was, I was. Uh, sometimes, again, I get, I, you know, I. Well, the way Chris um, gives me the movies is just a random stack. I'm not getting to pick and choose or say, oh, that looks interesting. Chris literally has a half dozen movies, puts Sorry. them in my hand, and goes, here, watch them. And this was the one that I probably wanted to watch the least. Um, and so I watched it first and it is one of the best ones in, in today's stack. Like it was, it's a really good film. Yeah. And I, I agree with you. The, the Oscars, especially it's the one category that I feel like the Golden Globes gets right more often than the Oscars is best foreign language film. Uh, and a lot of the times the Oscar one is you're right. So pretentious. And this is, is anything, but it is a quiet, very heartfelt drama about a really interesting person put mm-hmm. in a, a despicable situation. Yeah. Um, I, I, I thought one of the more interesting characters in here was actually the, I guess it was the uncle, like the, the, the her, yeah, her brother's it brother, was, yeah. who was like of everyone in the family, he's the only one who's, he's c- c- embarrassed about that all of the shit is going down, that his family is being such assholes about it. Yeah. But he's still not willing to confront them on it either. And he felt like this very strange, uh, for lack of a better term, when talking about this movie, transitionary uh, character <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that was going to, they were going to do something that in a normal, in a more straightforward drama would have had a much bigger role. Here, what's most important is the way that Marina forgives him. Yeah. You know? Well, the other thing too is I think the, other than the beginning when you see, uh, what's, what is her, her, 
uh, Orlando. Orlando, yeah. Uh, other, other than the Ray opening with there. Orlando, and that again going back to the show, don't tell. Um, you see him the the uh, material he can't find in his trunk in the trunk of his car, and he mentions it, and that's all that's given to it. There's no other cutaways to it, but you know that that's eventually going to have some kind of the thing that he's missing is going to have some kind of eventual like payoff in the plot. Right. That stuff I thought again really really smart. Subverts but, expectations yeah. as well in the way that it plays out. But the thing with him, other than his other than him opening the film, she's like in every single scene, right? Like the, Pretty much. Like, if memory serves, like, the camera just stays with her. And she's kind of an electric. Place to place. It's a great performance. Uh, I believe this was several different notable things about it in terms of the Oscars. It was the first Chilean film ever to make it to the final categories. Um, and it was also uh, the final nominations. And it was the first time a there's ever been a transgender presenter at the Academy Awards where she came on and actually presented one of the best song nominees, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, that was a pretty big deal. But if you do decide to pick this up on Blu-ray, there's an, a nice but small making of the fan, uh, a Fantastic Woman EPK uh, behind the scenes thing that was good. I didn't get a chance to listen to the audio commentary direct, with director Sebastian Lelio, but I hear it was actually quite good. I, it would have been interesting if they had been able to, if they had actually had uh, Daniela Vega on there as well, who apparently is is quite a pretty interesting, cool person uh, in real life, regardless. But let's and move, really young. Very young, She's yeah. very young, yeah. Uh, moving on to the next one was a big theatrical release of Red Sparrow. This is a spy thriller directed by Francis Lawrence, uh, teaming up once again with Jennifer Lawrence. I say that because they did most <laughs> of the Hunger Games films together. Uh, and this particular case, very different from Hunger Games in most ways, but she plays a, uh, well, a very, as they say, red sparrow, or at least eventually. She's a Russian ba- ballerina. She's very famous, uh, but she has a career ending injury in the middle of a performance. And her uncle, uh, basically, who works in Russian, Russian intelligence, kind of, talks her into slash tricks her into joining getting into intelligence herself which leads to her becoming the the people whose their job is to seduce people for information basically you know not not the best job to have in in the service unless you're an infomaniac or something i guess yeah. um and then of course this whole time we're also following another story uh, that with Joel Edgerton who plays a CIA operative who's over there and it becomes clear after a while she's supposed to seduce him and you kind of know where all this is going because basically this is if you've ever read Marvel comics this is the, the story of Black Widow almost straight straight up <laughs> um which even the director has commented on in interviews. He's like, I had not read those Black Widow comics, but I've learned since they're based on the exact same real life story that this is based on. So, you know, there you go. And this was released to much mixed reaction from people. I found that I actually quite enjoyed it. Uh, In my original review, I was like, yeah, it is very slow. It's definitely over long, but I like these it's not a Cold War thriller, but it might as well be, you yeah. know? I mean, the original book it was written in, I believe, was. But um, I like these type of things. And I think they do some interesting things with gender politics here and the way she does absolutely um, have agency. Yeah, they. the one thing that the movie does is instead of the, oh, I'm I'm going to turn into a spy, so I have... Uh, you know, I go to hand-to-hand combat training and I go to, uh, you know, firearm training. What this movie does is it's like sex training. Like, instead instead of the spy stuff that we've seen before where here's how you learn how to shoot a sniper rifle, it's like, here's how you learn how to seduce someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting because that's a big part of, like, those spy movies. And so this kind of explores, like, uh, you know, what if what if part of James Bond's training or anybody else's training was how to get into people's pants? <laughs> uh, and that was kind of interesting, but the movie itself was pretty, by the numbers, it's kind of weird. I felt like it's almost entirely devoid of what you would call like an action sequence. Mm-hmm. And it felt like to make up for that, any time that they could inject the film with graphic violence, they totally that do. They do. Yeah. And, and it's funny because it's not the graphic violence is not in the service of necessarily action sequences. It's either 
torture or murder or rape, and it's all really graphic in the moment, mm-hmm. um, but not necessarily like you know a Bourne movie or something like that where you're actually seeing like car chases and yeah. you know rooftop uh, this parkour. This is definitely not an action movie. No, it is a spy drama. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I guess on some level I liked that about it because I felt like it did keep moving, and I really didn't know where it was going to end up. Mm-hmm. I, I was by the end I was like, okay, that's an acceptable way to go. I don't know if it's the, the ultimate best answer, but um, I it's interesting. I've heard I, I listened to an interview with Jennifer Lawrence recently, which I never had. Strangely, all the podcasts, interview podcasts I listened to, I never heard one, and she is a, a really likable total weirdo. She's a weird chick, and she's talking about this movie like, oh, go see it, because I get totally naked in it. It's awesome. And that is not the way big Hollywood actresses usually refer to, like, first sentence out of their mouths describing their new yeah. <laughs> movie. And she's talking about it in other things that I've written, read, and she's like, they never told me I had to. I said, they said, would you? And I said, yeah, as long as it fits the script, I have no problem. And that being said... She's a good-looking woman. I had no issue with her, in fact, being that kid. And knowing that she was like, yeah, it's funny. I'm like, good. I don't feel like such a lech then. But, um, I mean, it's a movie that's so deeply about sex and sexual politics that it almost would have been weird if she hadn't, Mm -hmm. you know? And it is about women getting their agency back, you know, at least metaphorically. Yeah. You know, in this case, she's doing it through... uh, Spycraft and extreme violence. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was fine. I had heard mixed things about it and and could tell pretty quick that it was going to be fine. Sometimes a movie is sure-handed enough off the bat that you're like, okay, this is like, I can sort of get a feel for at least what this is, if not where it's going. Uh, and I, I thought it was fine. I did not, it was, it did not ever, despite the spine of it, being about the art of seduction in regards to the spy trade, I felt like everything else was was pretty standard. But then that's sort of like, um, you know, there's certain things that are just like, if you like Westerns, you're going to expect A, B, and C. Sure. And that's kind of what Red Sparrow was. Like, if you like Cold War thrillers, they can, then you can sort of expect A, B, and C to happen. They happen in Red Sparrow. Yes. And I, I don't necessarily think that's a fault, but I'm not, not, not necessarily in love with those movies. So I thought it was fine. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, also uh, featuring Matthew Schoenartz as her creepy uncle. Charlotte Rampling is the headmistress of the Teach You How to Be a Red Sparrow school. Um, Mary Louise Parker as uh, a U.S. diplomat. Uh, Siren Hines is in this. Um, oh, who am I missing? Hugh Corshi was the face in this that I was going, who's that guy? Who is that guy? And I had to look it up, and I completely forgot that he's Captain Panaka in... Uh, Oh, Star Wars Episode oh One. <laughs> Good Lord! See, I would forget that because I just haven't seen it, and so. And he was long. just in the church. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we just, just we just yeah. reviewed well, he the wasn't church. Just was, in the church. Well, no. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Like this is. I think this is well worth a look, especially if you know you like like these type of spy thrillers. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of EPK type making ofs that are all. Vri- Pretty uh, respectable lengths looking at the various different uh, things, but the the best thing is probably the Welcome to Sparrow School, the ba- ballets and stunts, which has Jennifer Lawrence learning how to do her own stunts and some of the dancing, which she, in that interview I was listening to, she was like, oh no, I never danced a day in my life. I, this was all I was doing, and they put me, I was like, okay, four hours a day every day for three months. She's like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> I just, she's honestly it was a Mark Maron interview if you get a chance at first you think first 10 minutes she's gonna fucking walk out of the interview she's like you, and then you realize she's just fucking with him uh, and it's like you're a weird chick I like it <laughs> not what you expect <laughs> yeah and there's things about the editing and scoring and there's uh, 12 and a half minutes of deleted scenes with optional commentary so it's actually a pretty decent package of, of bonus features now we'll talk about something that makes Red Sparrow look like it's a G-rated kids film and that is Black Venus this coming from Arrow's uh, collection this is a re-release of a 2010 French drama film that was nominated for the Golden Lion at the 67th Venice International Film Festival where it won the equal Opportunity Award. This is a movie that's been off to my in my periphery vision on my list to catch up with eventually. I remember hearing about it back when it came out and going, oh, that sounds interesting. And then it kind of got lost in the mercs of all the other things I haven't seen that I meant to get around to seeing. But following a very interesting, very true life disturbing story of the hot and tot Venus, 
uh, Sarah Bartman, who was taken from Cape Town, South Africa, and brought to England and France to exhibit as being sort of like a, a primordial woman, because partially that she had a really gigantic arse. And as well, as we see in the very beginning of the movie, very outsized labia. And apparently, and this is like an interesting bit of history that goes along with this, the Khoikhoi, which is the tribe that she was with, were, uh, they practiced genital mutilation mm -hmm. in the young teen girls. And so you have all these Dutch colonists uh, on the Cape of Africa who assume that they that this is the way that the tribe's women are born versus the reality of the right. situation, which is the Khoi Khoi were, were mutilating the women. Right. Um, and the film starts with a, a science school after we see she's she's already gone, passing around her dissected vagina mm -hmm. around people in a glass jar, which is a very disturbing way to start a film that, what you have, no, that's just, the, you're not even close to as disturbing as this movie gets. And you almost want to call it, and I've heard arguments on both sides that the film itself is exploitation. Yeah. It's it's hard to so I think here's here's my deal with it. I don't think that he there's a couple things going against uh, Ab Latif. Is that how you say his name? Uh, uh, your guess is as good as mine. Kachiche, Tunisian French. I'm going to say Kachiche. Kachiche. Uh, he directed. Like so first of all, I think it's important to know that if you believe the actresses on the set of Blue is the Warmest Color, yeah, which he that he used those like. actresses as his own. For his own titillation. I think it's important to know that watching Black Venus, because there's so much wanton nudity and perversity on display, oh, yeah. that I could not separate the actions of the director on another film with what was going on on screen here. I think the other thing that's missing, too, is a black woman's perspective, just flat out. And so the only perspective that he can come from is one of... I can't believe we as a world ever did something so horrible. And so it stays in the brutality for its entire running time, which is almost three hours. Mm -hmm. It's punishingly brutal. Oh, yeah. And that's the only real thing that it has to show is the dehumanization of, uh, of Sarah Bartman. And I think because of that if you look at something like we just talked about fantastic woman where the main character has indignities and dehumanizing events visited upon her several times the scene where in fantastic woman where she has to strip for the cops is one in particular that's mm -hmm. that's harrowing but you do have an understanding of who she is as a person through all these disgraces and i felt like what this film was missing was he never found a center for sarah as a character instead sarah was almost like a representation of the inhumanity suffered upon, you know, black people during this time. Uh, and, and I felt like I could have, I, at that length, I wish she was a character. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, which isn't to say that actress Yahima Torres, who I believe this is like one of the few roles she's had, yeah. didn't do a great job because I thought she really did. This, even as just an actress, had to be incredibly humiliating and difficult to play. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's sequences where she's chained up on, you know, ha ha on a leash and the master is letting people reach up and grab her backside in the audience. And you're like, I don't care if this is acting. It's, I mean, yeah. it's almost meta because it's acting within acting, but yeah. like, is she supposed to be the, the wild woman, but she can speak <laughs> multiple languages and she's not an idiot. She's just a little simple. Yeah. Um, but, and you think that's as humiliating as it's going to get. Oh my God, this thing goes to places so dark. I thought there was no way they were going to go there. And it's all true as I read after the fact. And she, as an actress, always has that sort of, I'm doing this. I'm just like, I'm absolutely in hell, but I'm being stoic as I possibly can about it the whole time. But mm -hmm. she does. I mean, this actress who, with the totally straight faces, you know, just pouring out tears, but never letting it show in her facial expression. You know, thought it was a very strong performance. Weird choice that historically, and I'm curious to know why they made this choice. I would love to know because the actual guy who brought her over was a freed black man. Instead, in this movie, they had to be a white man who, who was doing it. Uh, and I was like, wouldn't it have been a more interesting story if it had been a freed? Well, to that point, he and the guy that we see, the Dutch guy at the beginning, 
uh, what I read was that they'd both brought her over, and then at some point through some kind of whatever, I don't know if it was a business disagreement or what, that he left the group, and it was just the two of them. Mm -hmm. And so when you see them at, at the Piccadilly Circus, I think at the beginning, it's just the two of them. It does not touch on him at all as a character, as a presence, in any way whatsoever. But again, I think that goes back to what perspective can the director bring? He can only bring... Uh, a non-black male perspective, and that's from which he tells the movie. And I, I think that it's, I think it, it's weird because it, to get meta about it, for example, I think the pendulum swings the other way, where once again she becomes a symbol, but she becomes a symbol of suffering. But she's never, again, she's she's dehumanized. Mm -hmm. To me, the movie never, like. It the it's like the pendulum swinging too far, and it's like I want right in the middle. I want to, f or even closer to the middle. I want to feel who I want to know who she is. Yeah. Other than just an avatar upon which we watch all sorts of horrible. Shit I mean, the director almost is more interested in making her be a Jesus figure. Yeah. You know, a Christ figure in that sense. You know, in a very Mel Brooks or Mel Brooks Mel uh, Gibson version. <laughs> not not <laughs> the, the passion of the yeah. Black Venus. Um, I've read I read a lot after I saw this about the real story, about other critics' reactions to this, and I saw in other critics' reactions everything from this is one of the most important movies about African Americans ever made to this is nothing but shameless exploitation to reviews that agreed on both of those things. <laughs> you know, said it is that and it's also that. But I will say most movies this long, dramas like this, there's a point you just kind of check out. And I never checked out of this movie. I was like you're in it for the hall because you really, it's more of a horror film than anything else in terms of the way that it just affects you. It's kind of scary because you're like, how much worse shit can they do to this person? And it's so incredibly graphic. I don't know. I, it's not a film I can recommend to anyone, but I don't want to disdain it as having no great good qualities because I think it's a very well-made film in some ways. I just think it could have been a much better film. Yeah. With some um, restraint, perhaps. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of uh, it feels authentically period. Mm. Um, so there's an authenticity to it. I just and I think even as the story exists, I th I think that that kind of like nonstop brutality to me, if it were just a little shorter, my my a lot of mine has to do a lot of my feelings about it do have to do with length because at some point, to me there was like an enough is enough sort of like agreed like. How much more of that do I, how many more minutes of that did I need to see? How right. much, like, why, why is it padded out that long? Because at what point I'm not, because I'm not quite sure. I think I, my assumption is that the, that the director wants to convey, look at how we dehumanized human beings. Like, li like literally these were humans, but yet we treated them like animals. That is established about a half hour in, and you still have, like, two hours and 15 minutes of the movie left. Yeah. And so it becomes a question of, well, what are you trying to get across here that I may not have grasped in the first 30 minutes? And I don't know that he has anything else to say past that opening 30 minutes. Now, in regards to, like, did, there's there are they move from place to place, they go to France, they see high society there, eventually she finds herself... Uh, uh, and in with a bunch of French whores. Mm -hmm. um, so it, the movie does go different places, uh, but I didn't feel like it ever, you know, narratively there weren't enough, there wasn't enough going on plot wise. It was just sort of an extrapolation of the inhumanity that you see played out for as long as, you know, it needed to be until the credits rolled. Right. Uh, this being error release, it's extra feature. There's really only one, which is film critic Neil Young. No, not the musician. There's actually a film critic of that same name. Poor guy. Uh, who, um, uh, does basically an introduction to not just this film by Kachichi, but, uh, the rest of his films as well. So if you're a fan of the director, this might be picking up just to see this like, um, 33 minute overview of his cinema. My girlfriend watched it, um, with me. Uh, and my girlfriend's a black woman. And, um, she had heard the story and it seemed like we were, she may have liked it a little bit more than me. I don't know that that necessarily means anything, mm -hmm. but I think she, um, whereas I felt like it lacked character, she did not, she didn't feel the same way. Okay. Um, 
And I'm just throwing that out there just to provide a perspective other than, you know, we're two white dudes sitting on a couch. And it is a movie very much about the suffering, you know, afforded to African-Americans. So I did, you know, I wanted her perspective on it. But, uh, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of uh, sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with race at all. It's just a matter of somebody liked a movie more than you. Very true. Uh, our next film is a 1959 film noir Directed by Robert Wise, who's really a film legend yeah. of a director. I'm like, I've never even heard of this yeah, movie. Yeah, I expected, when I looked up the director, I expected to see some B director who'd probably done like a couple standout things. And I was like, oh, oh, it's a Robert Wise movie. Okay. And it's one of those films that it seems like only people who really like film noir is their thing know about. And they're all like, no, no, no this is an all-time classic. But it never really me seemed to make the leap towards being considered in a wider sense to be an all-time classic. Mm-hmm. But after seeing this, man, I'm so glad I watched this movie. Uh, for one thing, Harry Belafonte is the lead in a film noir. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. Uh, who is great. This is jazzy and it's fun. And then it's so dark you can't believe it. And then it's smart. Like, its symbols are obvious would be too simple of a way of putting it. There's something but. about it that has a very modern sensibility. Yeah. And I say that even though it's black and white and it is very like late fifties jazz mm-hmm. and like it, I mean, obviously it feels quote unquote old, but there's something about the frankness of the, there's something about the way that the characters are drawn in and the frankness of the situation that it felt very modern. It felt like literally somebody could just, update the sets and clothing Mm -hmm. and remake it as it is. I I kind of agree with you on that. Uh, The plot is Ed Begley. Yes, that's right. Ed Begley Jr.'s father is a former policeman who was ruined when he wouldn't uh, cooperate on a state crime investigation. Uh, So he's lost his job and he's hooked up with two uh, people he he knew from his job. Earl Slater, played by Robert Ryan, who's an ex-con. And then Harry Belafonte, uh, who is a nightclub entertainer. Um, who he doesn't want the job, but he's addicted to gambling and is so deep in debt that it's he's kind of out of choices at this point. And the ex-con is a uh, racist, which is obviously not a great team up here. No. And a lot of the core of this movie is indeed about that Man. differential. Talk about show, don't tell. Yeah. So he rides the elevator up with the black elevator operator who's making conversation, and Robert Ryan does not say a word to him and gets off the elevator. Ten minutes later, you see Harry Belafonte get in the elevator and just completely shoot the shit with the elevator guy. Right. Just, you know, making friendly small talk. And I'm like, all right, there you go. That's how you do it, movies. That's how you do it. That's very true. Trust us. You don't need to explain it to us. Just show that what we need to know about the characters. Yeah. Um, cause Harry Belafonte is a really likable character on this thing on the whole. And know? that's the other thing too, that not just, is it a matter of like, it's not just a matter of racism where this one, this one guy that's sort of a crook doesn't like this other guy that's sort of a crook just because he's black. There's also this world that neither of the men know about that the audience does, which is that Harry Belafonte is leading a, a pretty upper middle class life. He's uh, he appears to be like the featured performer at a jazz club. He has a uh, a wife who he's on the outs with because uh, uh, because of his gambling and because he kind of hangs out with you know hoodlums. That, right. That she is taking his daughter away, and and he has he has a, a social stature, whereas Robert Ryan is like a loser. Who is being supported by his living girlfriend, Shelly Winters? Yeah, and and is like and can't do anything right, and has a violent temper, and socially, like just the two men socially, like even if it removed black and white, like one of them is in a completely different place than the other one, but the one that's lo- like has less social status pictures in his head that he's higher, uh, just based on his color of skin. It was really, it was really cool to to. You know, movies like Heat and things like that where you see these characters that are mixed up in this criminal world and you kind of go home with them for a moment. Mm -hmm. Very few of them really pay off in the overall culmination of the job, the quote-unquote job. Right. And this one in particular, I thought all the information that you had about him and all the information that you had about him really helped and enhanced the job. By the time it got to the end where they're actually pulling it off – I was completely invested, and I also – it wasn't that I was rooting. There was a sense of dread because I knew that guy's racism was going to fuck him up. Of course. And the whole time I was watching, I was just like, how is his racism going to fuck things up? And it, yeah, and, and, and you, that's what you wait for. And the literally explosive ending. Um, 
And I, I did feel like that very, very end, like there's a shot where the camera pans over to a sign that says stop dead end. I was like, come on. There, that was really so on the nose. It was ridiculous. Yeah. You're like, yeah, we already got it. Was <laughs> of like racism leads nowhere but to mutually assured destruction. Yeah. <laughs> Do you notice all the like every nook and cranny of this film is like familiar faces? Like I think Cicely Tyson shows up. Uh, Time Daly is a girl at a bar. Um, Gloria the guy, Graham, uh, Trapper John from Mash. Yep, yep. <laughs> he was in there. Yeah, I know that's he's always just going to be Trapper John from yeah. Ashton. It's like, you know, oh, like, that what's that guy's guy? name? <laughs> I, I think this is a, a forgotten noir that is well worth rediscovering, quite yeah. frankly. Really, really interesting. Um, I, I, I'd say, even if you like stuff like Reservoir Dogs, like it's very much that type of movie. It's people yeah. with conflicting personalities that have to get along in order to do the job that's in front of them. And you're like, there's no way Tarantino didn't know about this movie. Yeah. There's no way. Uh, yeah, highly recommended. Next up is another Arrow release, and one that I will give my recommendation to, but only in that sort of, like, this thing is so insanely put together in a bad movie sort of way that it makes it very entertaining, is Death Smiles on a Murderer. I can't help but feel this whole thing was totally destroyed in the editing room. Like, it feels like it used to be a straight, linear story, and that someone goes, this doesn't work. Let's mix it all up, and and then we'll, it'll feel like it's a bunch more types of movies than it really is. Because at one point, I mean, it's nonstop, like, throwing nods to Edgar Allan Poe, which really, considering everything else that's going on, there's no reason for. There's a, a Victor Frankenstein-like character played by uh, Klaus Kinski that is in it just to be a plot device, basically, <laughs> briefly. There's, like, a ghost incest brother I, 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 it's hard to explain this in a very straightforward way as the film puts it out there. In fact, even the Wikipedia page doesn't acknowledge the nonlinearness of the story and just tells the whole story and the actual assemblage of the order in which things actually happened, which is I've never seen before, which makes me think yeah. there had to be another cut of this floating around out here somewhere. Oh. But it's this uh, genuinely gorgeous actress, Iwa, uh, Iwa Aulen, who plays Greta von Holstein. And she was... Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, she was kind of, yeah, she was in, played the title character in the film Candy, which was kind of a, a cult sexy hit with John Huston and Ringo Starr, Walter Matthau, James Coburn, Richard Burton, and Marlon Brando. And she kind of is one of those people, she's had a few films where she was just that, oh my God, this girl's so amazing. And this was one of the, one of the others. <laughs> but yeah, she's, we see her, we see that when we first meet her, she's dead and her brother's mourning her, but then it flashes to, she's not dead and she's in a carriage and the carriage gets uh, in an accident where the carriage driver is really graphically killed. <laughs> like, whoa, holy shit. Uh, and she's rescued from the carriage by this rich family living in a castle there, but she's got total amnesia. She can't remember who she is or where she's from, but they bring her in. Meanwhile, various people are hallucinating. The brother we saw in the beginning, who it's already been made clear that they had some kind of incest thing going on, but he's like a ghost. Like he appears and disappears, but he can kill people because we see him do it. Don't I still at the end of the movie that was like I have no idea what that was all about <laughs> where that even came from but this thing goes along and I guess there's a point that it finally you go oh okay I see how most of these things fit together in a story there's a part where somebody gets shot in the face with a shotgun and it looks like somebody put like like meat filled marinara sauce like just dumped it directly on their face it is not a great uh, uh, physical effect that is for sure um, but that's what I'm saying this movie is so crazy and it was when they started filming it it was going to be a totally different type of movie it was going to be a more of a straightforward giallo and somewhere along the line they just kind of lost their minds and made this really weird fucking movie that makes almost no sense that you get here I mean it really is one of those like I kind of have to recommend it to people who are like, oh, we're having a bad movie night. This would be a good bad movie night movie. Most of his movies are good bad movie night, but I'm oh, yeah. A, this is Joe D'Amato. Yeah, He's kind of the king of I'm not that. the biggest fan. I, I, when I found out who directed this, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Having seen Black yeah, Emanuel. Or yeah, I was like, I had a certain... It was actually a little more subdued and... Um, and 
like trying to be classy. I don't. I think his reach overextends his grasp. Mm-hmm. I don't think he is a good enough. I, I he made he made a lot of schlock and he made a lot of trash and he made a lot of porn. Yeah. And did that knowing like one of those filmmakers where it was a business and he's literally like cranking out crap. This felt like something where he was aiming for something more artful. But again, I, I think his reach over extends his grasp. Yeah. I don't think he has the skill set to create something artful. It doesn't it's it, absolute nonsense. It doesn't work at all, but that's like I said, that's it's on that level that I was enjoying it. Because it just every time you think you know, the, you get a handle on what this film is trying to be. It does something else that's really stupid to do in a movie that makes no sense in the context. And I was just like, what the fuck movie? <laughs> what are you... Like I said, all the Edgar Allan Poe stuff, every time they did one of those, I was like, why is this in the movie? And then, like, the, the cover, the original poster is this, like, uh, the brother's face being clawed up by a cat. And when it actually happens, you're like, why is this happening? And, like... Apparently, the director achieved that by literally pushing a angry cat into the face oh. of, of an actor, which is like, okay. Um, I don't know. You, you can't recommend this on any literal level just as a, oh, my God, this is... Yeah, you just, no, I think I think it's for Euro horror completists or people that already like his movies. I mean, he has fans. Yeah. Uh, and I think in that regard, you know, and kind of poking around, I saw that it is considered one of his better movies. Well, hey, you're in luck because it's out on it's out <laughs> right now. But, uh, yeah, it did not change my mind about him as a filmmaker. No, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a fan overall. Yeah. Uh, there's audio commentary by uh, film historian Tim Lucas. There's D'Amato Dem- Smiles on Death, uh, which is a archive interview with the director from 1998 um, where he just very casual talk with him in Italian and English subtitles. There's All About Ua, which is a 42, almost 43 minute uh, newly produced interview with the actress who talks about her history and her career. Uh, There's Smiling on the Taboo, a 20 minute and a half video essay by film historian Kat Ellinger that talks about some of the more controversial aspects of the film. Read Incest. Uh, (laughs) And then original trailers and stills and stuff. Um, Yeah, this is I don't even know. Uh, And then we'll talk about here. The next film is The Lodgers. Hey, guess what, kids? This is actually a new film. This just came out. Aren't you excited? (laughs) You'll recognize, uh, what's what's the, Filch? What's the name of the caretaker from the Harry Potter uh, movies? David Bradley. Yeah, Filch. Yeah, you'll recognize him. Uh, You know, a lot of fresh faces, but you, you will recognize that actor. Uh, and this is a new release by director Brian O'Malley, who actually in horror circles got a pretty good response for his very different type of horror film, uh, Let Us Pray. That's more sort of a gore fest type film, but I remember it was popular in the festival circuit. This one, which has indeed gotten some good reviews, which I'll admit I'm a little baffled by, but um, set in uh, 1920s rural Ireland, two uh, twins, Rachel and Edward, played by Charlotte Vega and uh, Bill Milner, live in a giant moldering, falling apart family estate. Uh, and we find out very quickly, every night there's a specific set of rules that they even have a song they sing to remember of things they have to do. One of which is they have to be in their rooms by midnight. Another one is no one don't else get is... Wet. Don't, don't get them wet. <laughs> uh, another one is, it was probably a good idea considering the yeah. stuff with water in this movie. Um, another one is no one else is allowed inside the, the even over the, the line of the house. You know, entered allowed to enter the house at all. Um, I'm trying to remember, what was the other one? There's no sex in the champagne room. There's no sex in the... Sh- I've discovered that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, and if one tries to escape, the other one will be killed. Yeah. So, but she's kind of a lot more headstrong than her brother, who looks like he's going to die at any moment of, like, uh, of like some wasting disease. He's so ty- skinny yeah. and, and pale. But she wants to have a life, and she's the only one. He's terrified to leave the house. She leaves the house to go to the town where she makes a connection of sorts to a war veteran, Sean, played by Eugene Simon, who's come back uh, missing a leg with a, with a, with a, uh, what do you call it? Fake leg. Uh, prosthetic. Prosthetic, thank you. And, uh, they, there's definitely an attraction between the two, but she's scared because, like I said, she's kind of got her own thing. As the movie goes along, we learn these guys are, this family has a very distressing history of the same thing happening over and over and over again to the two main family members that are alive. And that, yes, no big shocker, 
it does involve eventually incest on some level. Two incest films in a row. Who knew? That's why I put them next to each other on the list. <laughs> it was the one connection that they had. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff here with, like, it's ghost stuff, but not, and I'll hand it to it, not in any traditional sort of way. It was like, well, this is a weird thing where, like, every night there's water underneath it and it bubbles up through a trap door or on the ground floor. And there's lots of, like... I don't know. Are they, is this really happening to them? Are they hallucinating? Are they just, are they insane because of incest? You know, um, there's a lot of ways you could interpret this that none of the fantasy stuff was happening at all, you know, but that being said, at a, uh, you'd think tight 92 minutes, I was bored very quickly with this movie. Yeah, you, uh, you kind of root for it because it's good enough that you keep expecting it to escalate. Yeah. And then it never really goes to the next level. Uh, and I was kind of, I was, I was patient with it for a while simply because I thought that it would hit that, that escalation. It has some interesting imagery in it. And I'm kind of a sucker for like a really good Gothic horror movie, mm-hmm. but this never quite gets there. And I don't know, you know, movies are an alchemy, and it's like, it's it's fundamentally sound, the acting is fine, even the concept and some of the horror imagery is fine, Yeah. but for whatever reason, it never gets there, and I don't know what ingredient it was missing uh, to... to have it click into place, but none of this, none of the pieces really click. I would argue because there's absolutely no surprises past the first 20 minutes. You pretty much figure out everything this movie is going to do in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, and it acts like you're supposed to be really surprised at some of the reels. You're like, you've pretty much spelled this out from us for the beginning. So I don't know what you're wanting me to do. Gasp and clutch my pearls, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just found this thoroughly like and almost ran, but it desperately needed two or three more script passes. Beautiful yeah. looking, though. Yeah, it's uh, it is a it's an odd duck. It I wish that I could. It's weird that I almost wish I could either say it was bad or say it was good, but it was. It's just sort of like I kind of weirdly feel sorry for it because it's so <laughs> it's so much. It all the ingredients are there, and I don't know why the I don't know why the cake didn't come together. Yeah, it's so. too many old tropes. Too predictable. Um, it felt like the director and the scriptwriter were at odds here. Like the director's, it feels like the director's just doing the goddamn best he can with what he has to work with, and I'm not sure what there is you could have done. Yeah, that may be true. Um, there are a certain amount of bonus features here. There's 22 minutes of behind the scenes. There's two minutes of deleted scenes, uh, and then a TV spot about it. But that's about it. I'm not surprised they didn't spend a lot of time fixing up the Blu-ray. Our last pick today is definitely my pick of the week because I. I, I know that this had largely positive reviews, but I know a few people who just hated it. I was falling the side of totally adored, and that's Annihilation, the Shears, Alex Garland film. Of course, the guy did Ex Machina and wrote quite a few good, really good movies. Um, adapted from the, the first book of the trilogy by Jeff Vandermeer, starring Natalie Portman as a woman who... Uh, whose husband has disappeared, Oscar Isaac, to go work for the military, and he comes back one night after long since being presumed dead, and something is wrong with him, like really wrong, uh, both mentally and then physically as he starts bleeding out. Uh, she takes him to the hospital, and halfway there, they, she and the, her husband are stopped by some sort of mysterious military group that grabbed them and knock them out and bring them to a secret military hospital on the other side of the world, whereas we discover... There's apparently a large area of swampland that has had some sort of, I don't know, like the world's most like powerful rave is all I can think because it's just permanently glitterized. The whole thing is somebody started blowing bubbles and it just didn't stop. It's basically this area where once anyone has gone past it, they disappear. And she's notable because her husband is one of the is the only people person at least in the movie version who's ever come back. Um, and they have no idea how he ended up even back at her house. And she's like, was just brought there as an observer. She's a biologist. But when she starts to meet the rest of the, in this team, all female crew, uh, led by Jennifer Jason Lee, who's a, a therapist, who's the one who's been in charge of picking the crews in the past to go in. She decides there's nothing for me here. The only hope I have is that maybe I'll find something in there that can help my husband. And so she decides to go in with them 
I mean, for all she knows, they just disintegrate the moment they get in there. They don't. <laughs> but there's some real, real weird shit going on on the other side of the shimmer. But I guess that's as much as I want to say specifically about the plot. A lot of this film is really about discovery uh, of just like letting it kind of wash over you. I would almost describe this film as like aggressively ambient because it's not like it moves slowly, but there's a weird sort of like ambient music feel to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like crazy shit's going on, but and 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 it, it's one new thing after another but everything just has a kind of zenness to it in a weird sort of way until the finale until the finale which had the kind of uh like something that unsettles my primal core mm-hmm. in the same way the only film i can think of in recent years that had a similar ending was under the skin mm. where the very very end of under the skin i was right. sort of like what am i even watching right but in a way that was not a dismissive what am i even watching that sort of like just creeped you like, out on the level of- i how did this come out of someone's imagination exactly <laughs> and everyone agreed that this was a thing that should be filmed <laughs> uh and it gave me that yeah it was i thought the ending was chilling i am a huge huge fan of the book and this was for the first two months of 20 2018 my most anticipated movie based on my absolute love of the book mm. and the thing that i had hoped that they would get right the most out of the book because the trailers trailers let me know pretty quick that it was going to be about i want to I want to find out what's wrong with my husband. Almost made that some of it, some of the trailers were cut. Like I want to get my husband back. And in the book, that's not the deal. Right. And so I automatically knew, okay, plot wise, this looks way, way different because the thing is in the book, and this is not necessarily a spoiler. I'm just telling you a difference between the movies and the book is that the expeditions, the people that return from, the other side, which is never referred to as the Shimmer in the book and always referred to as Area X, when they come back from the other side, they are markedly different. They're very, like, they're oddly calm, um, and they also die of cancer within, like, month, month or two of exiting Area X. Mm-hmm. And she's aware of that, and the, the government, uh, the, the organization that's in charge of maintaining and studying area X keeps trying different variables of groups of people to cross over there. And she becomes due to the fact that she's uh, an incredible biologist, not because she's looking for her husband is drawn into uh, an all female squad. Because again, they're, they're trying like, let's try all men. Let's try two two men, two women because they can't figure out why the space seems to react in different ways. Um, the plot's very, very, very different. I hoped that the vibe would be the same and the vibe was the same. And so I kind of had to, I kind of had to separate the film from the book in my head mm-hmm. uh, and realize that the film is much more about, it's much more about her and her husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have to just take that as it is I mean, and realize how different it is. It doesn't even end anywhere near the same. No. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Garland almost ensures that the second two books couldn't happen, even if the movie had been like a breakthrough hit. He pretty much uh, puts a bow on whatever would have come from a trilogy right. because of the way that the film is plotted. In that case, the only real criticism I can offer the film uh, – as it stands on its own terms, I think for the story to be so much about her and her relationship with her husband, I think that the affair muddies the waters pretty badly. I, I did feel that that's my only real issue. There's no reason for that here. Yeah. You're already like, we get why she's there. I yeah. don't I don't need the whole, well, she also feels guilty. Yeah. You know? It, it, it felt, that stuff with the affair felt unnecessary. And, um, and that's just treating the film on its own terms. A lot of the stuff, my other criticisms are all based around stuff I wish was more directly in the books. Mm. Like, and I've talked to you about this before, but the title comes from, um, in the novel, they can't pass through the shimmer. They can't pass through that soap bubble looking thing Mm -hmm. uh, unless they're under hypnotic suggestion because the, the human body is so revulsed by the crossover that they have to basically be unconscious while they walk through it. Okay. Um, and so because of that, they have to be under hypnosis 
and the title of the film is tied to hypno- hypnotic keywords. One of the great things about the novel is that they figure out pretty on pretty early on that the Jennifer Jason Lee character can manipulate them with code words, and so none of them have any free will when they're over there because all she has to do is say whatever she, say the words, yeah. and they'll carry out her commands. But none of that is a part and of this. None of that is in the movie <laughs> at all. So certain things like that, where I'm like left going, like, why would you cut that? That's so good, and it's so chilling and weird in the book because Natalie Portman will go to bed at night. Her character, the mm-hmm. biologist, will go to bed at night in the novel and wake up and not know whether or not she had carried out a bunch of orders from the psychologist dur- during the night. Right, right. And, and that's, that paranoid stuff is so good. I would say if you've seen the movie and you like it at all, you have to read the book. I would say if you saw the movie and you, <laughs> you hated it, the book's really, really good and it's a completely different experience than the movie. But again, I don't want to dominate this conversation, <laughs> but to me it was all about tone. Could I get the specific creep-out feelings, the weird, unsettling to my core feeling from the book, could the movie provide the same thing? And at the end of the day, the movie did. It did it a completely, it got, it went a completely different route to get to that point, Mm -hmm. but that stuff still stuck. And Mm -hmm. I was like, I cannot deny the power of the imagery that I'm seeing at the end of this movie that still unsettles me in the same way that the book did, despite them being different. And I'll say, and this seems to be a source of frustration for people who I know who didn't care for the film. You don't have to understand absolutely everything for something for a sci-fi movie to be a good film. You just have to understand it just enough that you can have ideas about what it might be for it to be interesting, which is ultimately what I feel like this film was driving at more. It was like, yeah, we get the basics of the mechanics of this universe, but where it ends up is where it's left a lot more up to you to decide what you think is going to happen next. Um I don't have any issue with that. I really don't if it's done intelligently. And I thought it was done extremely intelligently here and very creepily. And I also want to say as well, I mean, yes, Hereditary is very creepy and all that. But the scene with the mimic bear in this movie is the scariest shit I've seen in a movie this year. Yeah. That sent chills down my spine watching that sequence. I was like, holy fuck. That's the noise it made. Yeah. That's the scariest fucking monster I've seen in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, I like the noise it made. There's a, there, That part, there's actually a little bit of a similar thing. It's staged completely different, but there, she never sees it. Mm. But there is a there is a creature that she, she she keeps it behind her and is running forward from it. <laughs> Good but call. she knows that it's not she knows it's not a person. Uh, and that was definitely like an adaptation of that scene. That was that was one of the few things that I was like, okay, this is a loosely reworked version of what we saw in the. I'm glad the you did get to see it though, because it really was. It was one of those, man. That, yeah. I like that. I yeah, I'm getting creeped out just thinking about it. Uh, also, this also stars uh, Benedict Wong, Tessa Thompson, Gina Rodriguez, uh, and Tuva Novotny. I thought that was a really solid cast. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. Uh, the extra features are three, just a, a, a detailed story of the film's production broken up into three segments based on the three acts of the film, largely, uh, that I only watched the third segment of, um, but I enjoyed watching it. Uh, I definitely plan on going back and watching the whole thing. Um, I think it's well worth your time. I still would have liked more here. This feels like if there's ever a movie you want a commentary track for, for fuck's sakes, it's probably movies like Annihilation. You should get the audiobook. You yeah, because uh, yeah, you do a lot of driving. You should you should listen to it. Okay. If you don't have time to read it. You should you should listen to it while you're driving around. It's uh, it it is very very good. And the second one is the second. They're all very different from each other too, which is really cool. But yeah, it's really good. The Southern Reach trilogy is the is the name of it. Yeah. Southern Reach is the name of the uh, the company. I guess that's in the movie. One of our critics yeah. is actually uh, reading them right now. I'm like, oh yeah, this series is so good. Yeah, so. really uh, excellent. But that's it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being a subscriber. Oh, wait. You're not a subscriber yet? What? Be a subscriber. What the hell's holding you up here? Don't you want to hear more Digital Noise? You better become a subscriber is all I'm saying. I'm not threatening. I'm just saying. Anyway... Uh, also, of course, thanks to our sponsor, Oscar Blues Brewing Company. First craft brew in the can. Go out there and grab yourself a six-pack of Dale's Pale Ale or any one of their fine alcoholic beverages. They actually make really good sodas, too. I had their black cherry vanilla soda the other day. Oh, it was fucking good. Really liked it a lot. Uh, and dry rubs, weirdly. 
<laughs> and bicycles. They make bicycles too. What, I don't know. What, they're just like throwing, going? They throw a dart at the wheel of things you could possibly make and go, bicycles? Okay, I guess we make bicycles now. But anyway, yeah, go to Oscar Blues, buy their beers, tweet at them and say, hey, I'm drinking one of your beers because one of us.net told us to. Uh, we'll be back in probably just under a week with more. I know poor Aaron, who has to go out of town for like a month, is frantically trying to get through his stack of movies right now so he can before his, his leaving town date. So hopefully that'll get done and we'll have those. But anyway, thank you so much, John. Is there anywhere you want to tell people to find you online? Uh, can I can I promote something? Absolutely. Please do. Uh, hey, here in town, I'm heavily involved with uh, performing comedy at Fallout Theater. And Fallout right now is, uh, they've got a Kickstarter. Um, it was the new movement theater. They changed management, changed ownership, and they want to make some major improvements to the facility. Um, and so they have a Kickstarter going right now. Uh, you know, we're hoping it's successful so that the money can go towards, you know, we want to fix the bathrooms. We want to provide, you know, just better amenities and make it a nicer, a nicer place, but also still keep the lights on because it's sort right. of like a fork in the road of one or the other. They can just keep functioning as is. Or, you know, or ask for help. Right. They're asking for help. So go to Kickstarter, search for Fallout Theater, and if you can, give a buck, share that you gave a buck, and then that can go to somebody else who can give a buck, because that's how those things roll. Don't just look and go, well, I can't, I don't want to spend $50 to get the t-shirt. Don't spend $50 to get the t-shirt then. All it takes is a dollar and a share, because you never know if the next person might be the person that throws it some money. There you go. You heard the man. That was a direct call to action. Do it. Seriously. Do it. Uh, <laughs> thanks, John. We'll be back very shortly with more digital noise.